this week on the Backtable Podcast. I agree with you. You know, I think there was that reputation of the SEO being this draconian work is everything, but I think that's definitely changing. If you, even if you go to our meetings, the the sessions are different. You know, we're actually talking about work life balance as part of the as part of the meeting, whether at the at the AUA or at the uh, actual winter meeting. But I think the people who are in our positions have that responsibility to project that to our trainees and to the people who are coming up behind us. I think that things have changed. I think that attaining a good work life balance is something that is to be treasured, is something to be applauded. And I think that the three of us here have that responsibility. And I think it's something that's, it's good that we're talking about this. It's good that we're, you know, we're telling people that this is something that we want and that we're able to achieve and that uh, people can follow our lead. and welcome back to the Back Table Podcast, your source of all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at backtable.com. I am really thrilled to be here today with two great guests. My name is Kristen Scarpato. I am a urologic oncologist at Vanderbilt, and we are going to be talking today about why consider an SUO fellowship. So my guests today will share their personal experiences. And the motivation behind this podcast is multifold. There's been a lot of chatter recently about fellowships in urology in general, and that's for a variety of reasons. It's really a favorable job market for those who are graduating from residency currently. And certainly there's an eagerness among trainees to be done with training and move on to real life and next steps. And further, some fellowships are evolving and changing, offering new pathways and different experiences. And we thought this would be a great time to highlight our experiences with an SUO fellowship and the different and varied career paths that we have pursued. So first, let me introduce my excellent guests and friends, Dr. Todd Morgan. He is a professor of urology, urologic oncologist, and chief of urologic oncology at Michigan. And Dr. Phil Kim, he is a urologist at Kaiser Permanente who specializes in urologic oncology. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Kristen. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Awesome to have you. So let's start kind of with some of the basics. I'm going to start with you, Phil. Where did you do your residency? I did my residency at USC 2005 through 2011. Don Skinner was my chief for the first four years of my residency and then Indy Gill. So two opposite sides of the spectrum for my last two years. That's, uh, you know, where I kind of got my first intro into urology oncology, training under Skinner and Stein, Dr. John Stein, who passed during my fourth year. And then continue that work with the guys who came over from the Cleveland Clinic uh, with Dr. Gill. So that's my beginnings in urology oncology. Do you remember at what point in your training you had your aha moment, you wanted to be a urologic oncologist? Yeah, during those long nights at County Hospital in Los Angeles, you know, taking care of patients. The funny story is that I realized I didn't like general urology. I didn't like doing terps. That's, that terp smell made me physically sick. I didn't like doing stones. All that back and forth gave me motion sickness. And they were just difficult cases. I just didn't like it. And at the same time, I realized that, you know, some of my academic interests in college, being a bio major and studying biochemistry, I think that I really actually admitted that I like learning all that stuff. And I like looking at pathways and looking at pictures of signal transduction, all that kind of stuff that I actually kind of afraid to admit that I liked. I actually decided that I enjoyed it. 
during my research year, I joined one of the uh, research labs looking at bladder cancer, you know, bladder cancer signal transduction pathways. And therein was born my interest in urologic oncology. I also just like doing those big cases. I like being scrubbing in and being asked to do this part of the case, that part of the case. I really just like the way that John Stein, Isla Skinner, Don Skinner talked about cancer and talked about cancer patients. And so that was my aha moment, my separation from general urology over towards really enjoying the process of urologic oncology. Yeah, great. A lot of great role models you just named, kind of giants in the field of urology and urologic oncology. And I think certainly for many of us, as we move through residency and gain more exposure to those bigger cases and an understanding of the disease processes and multidisciplinary care, we get kind of drawn towards towards urologic oncology. Todd, where'd you do your residency? Yeah, I was also a West Coaster. I was up in uh, the Northwest, University of Washington. Great, great residency program. Nice. And did you always know you wanted to be a urologic oncologist? You were that third grader who was like... Yeah, I was. I mean, I, I, I didn't even know what urology was until I was well into med school. But I did kind of have an early draw towards cancer care. You know, I was really starting from early high school. I started volunteering in the summers at a, a camp called Camp Good Times, a camp for one of those camps for kids with cancer and their siblings. And that had a huge impact on me. And I kind of carried that with me throughout med school, throughout residency. And it was probably the middle of residency or so that I was really drawn to urologic oncology. And similar to Phil, a lot of it had to do with mentorship and the role models. I think back on Paul Lang, another kind of just giant thought leader really an inspiring individual who's as much as anything passionate about the field of urologic oncology and that drew me in dan lynn still a great mentor for me bob Vasella, a researcher who's run a successful lab there for many years and a lot of the draw also was just the kind of the expertise that everybody had and then i just i was so jealous of and hearing the conversations and, and a lot was the conversations between disciplines so hearing the pathologists the radiologists and the radiation oncologists, the medical oncologists, and being at some some just weekly meetings that had everybody involved. And again, the, the passion and the really thoughtful discussions and arguments, those all drew me in. I, just, I, I wanted to be part of that. Yeah, great. You know, for me, I was a resident at the University of Connecticut, and my chairman was Dr. Peter Albertson, the Hopkins-trained urologic oncologist who ran the most exciting and impassioned journal club I still have ever been to to this day. And I had interest based initially on those journal clubs, which were so fun because he did so much on the history of urologic oncology, who was writing the papers, why were they writing them, and the kind of drama and backstories related to everything, which was really fun to hear. But my aha moment came actually when I went to that basic sciences course that is not called that anymore, but used to be in Charlottesville. And as a third year urologist, I went and I remember sitting through those lectures. And that was the first time I ever heard Dr. Lenahan, Marston Lenahan's talk on RCC and the history there. And my mind was completely blown. I thought that was so cool. But what I really loved is that afterwards, I said, hey, do you have some time to talk? And he sat down and talked with me and was very enthusiastic about my interest in urologic oncology. And then, like three months later, out of the blue, he sent me an email. Just, hey, Kristen, are you still thinking about urologic oncology? I think you'd be great following up on our conversation. No idea how he got my email address, but the thought that he remembered me 
I had that interest. I had great mentors. I was like, this field is filled with wonderful people who really care about what they do and care about those who are who are involved. So I think we all have some kind of similarities there. But you decided, Phil, to go on to fellowship. So where'd you go? I was at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. I was there between 2011 to 2014. So I was in that short era where they were doing three-year fellowships. And, you know, a lot of people who were, you know, viewing my decision with a little interest, they said, why are you doing a three-year fellowship? I said, listen, I just really want to do it. You know, I want to be out there. I want to just immerse myself. And not only cancer care, but like Todd was alluding to, being part of that team. You know, when we did our interviews, it wasn't meeting just with the urologic department. We met with the oncologists and other trainees too. And so I think that really attracted me to a place like Sloan Kettering. I think for me, I wanted to go to a place where I could expand upon my experience in oncology already. At USC, we're known to, you know, we were known at the time to be a really big, heavy, big open program where the residents got a lot of training, hands-on experience, both at the county, on the county side and also at the cancer center. I felt like I was a pretty good surgeon for, for my level of training. So I didn't necessarily want to go somewhere where I needed to do a lot of cases. I think at the time, Sloan Kettering had this reputation of, well, you know, you may not get as much surgical experience as you, you may want. That's not really what I was looking for. What I was really looking for, that collaborative experience, that multidisciplinary training where, you're, where I was going to get a chance to train in the lab with medical oncology, radiation oncology, along with taking care of a busy service. I was looking forward to a chance to get away from clinical medicine for a little bit and just do my research. And so that's one of the things that really actually attracted me about the program, uh, just a place where you could do, have anything you wanted and really run with it. Great. And what did you end up doing your research on? So I worked in lab with David Solid. I also knew from having done some science that you got to be really lucky and you got to be really smart to get something done in a short amount of time. So I think I went to it with a little bit of experience knowing that I didn't want to do a quote unquote pure bench project. At the time, you know, this is early 2010s, there was a lot of interest in precision medicine, a lot of interest in personalized medicine. And this was kind of the beginnings of large-scale genomics in bladder cancer. So I actually looked for a research project that would allow me to do something kind of sciencey, but not requiring me to go in, you know, on the weekends to, you know, run my Westerns and Western blots and whatnot. So I worked on a genomics project. We were using targeted sequencing for bladder tumors. TCGA was happening at the same time. So we we're doing a little bit of a smaller version of that without going to too many details, able to, you know, start and more or less pass on my project to somebody else, still get a paper out of it. So I think it was an appropriate sized kind of project for the time that I had. Great. And Todd, I think I know where you did your fellowship. Pretty good spot. You know a little bit about it. Vanderbilt. Yep. It was awesome. And how did you choose Vanderbilt? I, um, you know, I was looking for a place with great people. And at the time, so I, I finished residency in 2009, and we were pretty early in our robotic experience at University of Washington at that time. And so I really felt like surgically I needed to focus in on robotic training. So that was one of the reasons I ended up at Vanderbilt. And then I wanted a place where they were surgeon scientists. And at Vanderbilt, Pete Clark was kind of early to mid-career and I knew he would be an amazing mentor and he turned out to be an amazing mentor, somebody who was funded doing really interesting work at the time in Wilms Tumor. And so, um, and that's where I spent my research time. I, I think you guys had some similarities in your interest in basic science in your fellowships. I think that there's a lot of opportunity in fellowship. I was never someone who was inclined towards research or basic science, although I thought a lot of it was interesting. And my journey to Vanderbilt was a little different. I was really interested in global health. And I had the good fortune of bumping into Dr. Jay Smith, legend, at one of the 
AUA conferences. And I think we actually were in the gym or something, and he was probably running 30 miles and squatting, you know, heavily and doing all the amazing things that Jay Smith does. We got to talking about global health, and that's where I learned about Vanderbilt's global presence and the opportunity to explore that. And so that kind of brought me to fellowship down at Vanderbilt where I I have stayed. But I think that there's a lot of opportunity within urologic oncology if your interest is global health or education or basic sciences. And you kind of get exposure to all of that during your fellowship, which is really kind of special and unique. I know that both of you had some extensive training in clinical trials design and kind of the research process. And I was hoping you might be able to talk a little bit about that. Todd, I'm going to pick on you first because I know you've done a lot of clinical trials. Yeah. I mean, amazingly, I got almost no training in clinical trials through the residency and fellowship. I paid attention to what was going on. But when I saw it, so I took a faculty position eventually at University of Michigan, which is where I am now. And my, you know, my scientific career kind of really fo- has focused in on prostate cancer biomarkers and both tissue, tissue-based biomarkers and the liquid biopsy space. And when, you know, early career, I, I think we all understand the importance of clinical trials and we understand the importance of, okay, if we're going to do biomarker research, still the, the pinnacle is putting that into a clinical trial. But I didn't know what that meant. And probably two or three years in is when I started to write, co-wrote a clinical trial with Michael Chair, who's at Wayne State University, another urologic oncologist. And that trial is G minor, genomics in Michigan, impacting observation or radiation. And so that's a randomized, a trial randomizing patients to, this was the decipher biomarker tissue-based test post-prostatectomy to get the test or not get the test. And it took years to write, you know, the, the whole process to get funding, approval, all, all of that. And the reality is all of my clinical trial training just happened on the job and which is the good and the bad. And we can talk about some of the mistakes I made along the way. And it was an incredible learning experience. I still say that that was probably the most difficult thing I've ever done in urologic oncology, save maybe the follow-up trial, which is ongoing, which is the G major trial, which, you know, that I won't even try to, what that stands for. But if this is a earlier stage biomarker trial for patients with favorable risk prostate cancer, but the, you know, there were a lot of mistakes were made. And kind of a lot along the way that just I didn't, you know, I didn't have the knowledge and training. And yet we were still able to do it with a lot of help and guidance and in figuring this out on the job and ran this trial, G minor successfully accrued patients on right on time, have presented the data, the, you know, initial manuscript is in review right now. So um, it is, it's really important and it's something that we can do. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So with that knowledge, do you now collaborate with your fellows and provide any sort of guidance and training in clinical trials, given your own, I hate to say trials and tribulations, but I'm going to say it. I said it. I dropped it. Nice. Well, well played. So totally. I think a lot of lesson for me was we can do this. And yet, man, there are a lot of resources out there that help all of us in medicine learn how to conduct clinical trials. And so I do have a lot of knowledge from experience and we meet and talk about that and pass that on. And I've, I've definitely helped mentees write their own trials. And we prioritize it, right? And and so we, we, I mean, so many of our trainees are committed and interested in becoming leaders in clinical trials, and yet we don't always have the resources to train them. And so I, I, the SUO has made a huge push in that direction, and it's incredibly necessary because it's so important. And, and again, we, we can leverage coursework like at University of Michigan. We can leverage national coursework and, and workshops to help make sure that everybody's trained. 
Yeah, no, that's that's great. I was going to highlight the SUO as well. I think understanding and awareness of that kind of training gap, which has persisted for a while, I think a lot of clinical trials has kind of been on the job training, kind of reinventing the wheel as new fellows come in. And with that, they have developed and built this SUO CTC Clinical Trials Consortium, which is awesome. That collaboration and education and kind of they've gone beyond just being a place where folks can talk about clinical trials to being a source of education for fellows, for urologic oncologists who are interested. And just a little plug for our upcoming meeting, there's a half-day SUO CTC meeting taking place and talking about some of the ways to get started, some of the mistakes we've made, some of the successes that have occurred through the SUO CTC. So if you're going to the meeting, try and try and make it. And it's great. It's a great program. It's so important that the SUO is doing this. But I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, which is that um, about a year into running G minor, maybe more, we got a question from the IRB. They said, um, you know, what, what's going on? We haven't heard, from, we haven't gotten a data safety monitoring report. And I said, what's data safety monitoring report? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so that just show, shows you where, where I was. And so it turns out, yeah, this is like, you need to actually have a data safety monitoring committee and a plan. And somehow we had gotten the whole trial through without that plan. And of course, didn't therefore have the report. And so we were able to adjust and fix it. But there are so many details that extend beyond just writing, like having the idea and doing the power calculation and figuring out how to operationalize the trial. But there, there are a lot of people out there with experts, probably if I just asked, you know, the right people, definitely if I just asked the right people, we would have solved that from the get-go. But also we make mistakes and we figure it out and then we adjust and improve. Yeah. So Phil, now I have a two-part question for you. First, you are at Kaiser and I understand that's your your first job out of fellowship, correct? That's correct. Okay. And so the first part pertains to that, you know, how did you make that decision? What was the motivation? Did you struggle with choosing that versus, you know, an academic quote unquote practice? Talk us through how you chose to join Kaiser. All right. We're going to do some real life talk now. So I, I went to New York City with dreams of academia. I was going to be that guy. Went to New York with my 16-month-old. We left when she was four. Had my second kid when I was in New York. And I think that just life, I think my priorities changed a little bit. I realized that I personally didn't feel like I could do all of the things I wanted to do professionally. And remember, you know, we're the kind of people that really achieve, you know, we, we're, we're high achievers. You know, we, we get to the point because we have been able to do a lot of things we wanted to do. I didn't feel like I could do everything that I wanted to do professionally and also do everything that I wanted to do personally as a dad, as a part of a family, as a friend, you know, and I think I just had to, I just kind of ran through this all, you know, all throughout my time in the fellowship. What am I going to do? What am I going to do with this? Long story short, I just realized that I may not want to do, I think things like geography and family took more of a higher place on that priority list and looking for a job out of fellowship. And so I started, hey, let's, let's focus on family. Let's, let's try to find something on the West Coast where my parents are, the rest of my wife's family was. And this is also, you know, early 2010s, you know, a lot of the public universities weren't hiring coming out of the, you know, still reeling from the effects of the academic downturn in 2008, 2009. I interviewed for this job at Kaiser pretty much almost on a whim. I had friends in the Kaiser system for my time in Los Angeles saying, hey, there's, they're looking for somebody to do oncology in San Diego. Never thought about living in San Diego. Did the interview, and I realized I'd be joining a group of about, at the time, about 16, 17 urologists. I'd be taking care of 
all the Kaiser patients in San Diego who had urologic oncology issues. And I realized that as a clinical practice, that this job offered everything I wanted to do. I'm doing all the big cases. You know, I'm the go-to person, even for on a day-to-day basis for questions about, hey, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? I'd be the referral person. I would be kind of taking over for somebody who had been doing all that stuff who actually wasn't an SEO person, but was getting say, hey, look, I'm getting tired of this. I'm, I'm, I need to retire soon. I just need somebody. And the field was changing. And so the job represented something where I was able to fill what I want to do in clinical practice. I also wanted to do maintain, you know, keep my foot in the research world. Kaiser has literally millions of patients in their database. And I thought that that would be a good opportunity for me to continue some of the work that other people in the Kaiser system had been doing. We don't publish as much as I think we should, but there was an opportunity for there for me to kind of step into that role. And I think that's something that really attracted me about the, about the job. Personally, I'd be close to family. Uh, my kids would be close to their grandparents and cousins and whatnot. And I think for a lot of reasons, I think the job just makes sense for me at the time. Great. Did you struggle at all with, I just went to Memorial Sloan Kettering and now, you know, I'm making this decision to not pursue academia. Was, was there any like guilt or stress about that or you, you felt really good about your decision? Oh, I, I live with that guilt every day. I think that's, I, I think, I think that's, uh, I think that's every day I wake up says, so, you know, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? So I say that jokingly, but yes, I think there's always that part of me that says, you know, there's still some things that I want to. I think if you want to take a look at it on the positive side, I think that drives me, I think motivates me to do more than what I'm being asked to do, right? Really, as a job at Kaiser, I'm in a managed care organization. I'm there to see patients, take care of them. But there's more that I want to do. That's not all I want to do. The Kaiser Permanente just started a medical school that's based out of Los Angeles. The call went out, we need people to be research mentors. So I actually have a faculty position at the School of Medicine as a research mentor. That's new, so I haven't I'm not, I don't have any mentors under me right now, but you know, I say, Hey, this is the research that I'm doing. This is the, these are the projects that I'm involved in. And that's something that I want to keep doing. The other thing about academics, and you guys all train residents and fellows, and we actually do have residents and fellows that we train as part of our program. And so that's also something I really enjoy doing. So I do get that academic experience in terms of, you know, not, not running major clinical trials like Todd, Todd's doing, but I still am able to be part of IRB prize. I'm still involved in clinical trials. You talk about the SUFCTC consortium, you know, there's a small group of us Kaiser physicians who are part of the SUO and go to the meetings. I haven't been to a meeting in a few years, but we're part of the people that say, hey, these are the trials that are being offered to us, or these are trials that we need to open here at Kaiser. So I'm part of that decision-making process. So in terms of that part of the academic quote-unquote lifestyle, I think I'm able to still maintain that type of practice, not just on the clinical side, but on the academic clinical trial training aspect. That's awesome. I mean, it sounds like you have a very meaningful career with a happy personal and family life. So it, it kind of sounds to me like you you made a great decision that a decision that was that was right for you. I, I when I was asking you about the, the the guilt aspect of things, I didn't actually think that would play into it. I mean you you have a lot of opportunity where you are and it sounds like you have a busy clinical practice doing what it is you want to do and are able to participate in multidisciplinary collaboration. And now you have a faculty appointment, which is great. Um, And the personal aspect of your family life, obviously, is critical to happiness. Oh, absolutely. You know, we're a big organization. You know, just in San Diego, there are are roughly 3 million people in greater San Diego. And Kaiser has about 20, what I hear, about 20% of the market. So we're taking care of six, 700,000 people here at San Diego locally as part of the Southern California, you know, regional GU oncology, you know, steering committee. You know, that's 3 million patients. Uh, there are several SUO trained urologic oncologists within the Kaiser system. And so we collaborate with each other all the time. 
two arm boards, you know, the research that I talked about, clinical trial decision making, you know, um, and it's a good group. It's a great group, and including several of my co fellows from Sloan Kettering and elsewhere. So yeah, if it's if, if it's not academic in name, it certainly is academic in nature. It's so good for the trainees listening to this to to hear your kind of your experiences, Phil. You know, obviously the urologic oncology fellowship programs are at big academic centers, but the sole purpose of the urologic SUO urologic oncology fellowship is not to train everybody to go be at big academic centers doing clinical trials or health services research or translational research. The point is to develop expertise and true experts in urologic oncology who who can take care of patients, but also all the other mentorship and scientific aspects of your job that you talk about. I just know that I think people who are listening to this podcast, especially if you're a resident or a trainee or a medical student even, I think all of us felt that pressure, you know, where am I going to go to fellowship and, you know, am I going to have that pressure to publish and go into academics? I certainly felt that. And I certainly, especially with a place like Sloan Kettering. I can also say that the people at Sloan Kettering have always been super supportive of me. Joel Scheinfeld, all those guys. They're still my go-tos when I need to talk to somebody, you know, at that level. (laughs) You know, I still feel very connected to my fellowship. I still feel very connected to the SUO. And I don't think that my place where I'm at changes that at all. It doesn't change anything I feel about my training. It doesn't change anything about what I learned about my training. And I still apply everything that I learned in training every day in my practice. Yeah, exactly. And we, we, you know, we see this in Michigan through the Michigan Urological Surgery Improvement Collaborative or MUSIC, which includes virtually all of the physicians and virtually all of the, all of the urology practices in the state and collects data you know, from a lot of the workers within urologic oncology and prostate cancer. And you know we we see community practice docs who are at least as engaged and many if not more engaged than at some of the academic centers and leading projects and quality improvement and science and trials and so there are many many ways to be a you know incredibly engaged and thoughtful and thought leader in in urologic oncology and it extends well beyond the academic centers. Yeah, absolutely. And your training at an SUO fellowship sets you up to do any of those things, whether you choose to go into academia or not, the goal is to be able to take the best care of our oncologic patients. And that, I think, incorporates not only the robust surgical training that we all get in our SUO fellowships, but also an understanding of the disease processes, which is critical to taking care of those patients. You might be, for instance, really well-trained in robotic surgery, right? And you have patients come to see you as a robotic prostatectomy surgeon. And then someone says, oh, hey, this is a, a cancer doctor. And your next patient comes in with high-grade T1. And if you didn't have that training, you're probably not going to be well set up to manage the complex high-grade T1 space for your patient. And so having that training in all of the disease processes, I think, is really important for patient care to optimize optimize patient care for oncology patients. And then, as you said, the mentorship aspect of things is, I think, critical. It really is such a wonderful community. And then I want to go back for a second just to the research, because I feel like research is like such a sticking point, and not everyone is inclined to pursue research. I think it's important for trainees to understand the process, but many, myself included, aren't interested in robust research, right? It's not kind of what gets us out of bed in the morning. But even if that's not the case, the training that you get in an SUO fellowship, I think, sets you up for communication, understanding the research process, all of these things that ultimately benefit patient care. So with that training, even if you don't pursue to publishing 
after that or academia, you have that knowledge that I think translates into better patient care because you know how that works. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you said it best, you know, the experience of being in an SEO fellowship in a place where you are working in a collaborative environment day in, day out, that translates, you know, that, that doesn't end, you know, and the way you learn to talk about cancer with other colleagues, that's something that just evolves and grows uh, no matter where you end up doing your practice. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this. So, you know, I think we need to frame it as scholarship, right? Research. I mean, for, for some of us, like the research that, that drives us and that's a huge part of our career. And I knew that from, you know, early days and research year during my residency and research year in my fellowship and pursued a career as a certain scientist running a lab. I'm in the minority here, right? And so some folks are drawn to that and many are not, but scholarship is really important. And scholarship, which can be research, but it, it can, you know, it can be in quality improvement. It can be work in education. It can be work in global health. That scholarship is part of being a, an expert. It's part of being a well-rounded urologic oncologist who takes outstanding care of their patients and who pushes the field forward, right? At some level, we all, especially fellowship-trained urologic oncologists, we have a duty to push the field forward to impact the culture of our field. All of us do. And I think we do that best if we're doing something beyond taking care of our patients, which of course is the most important thing that we do. Yeah, I 110% agree with that. Question. I'm going to switch gears. There's a lot of focus these days in general on well-being, wellness, work-life balance. All of those terms can be a little triggering or inflammatory, I think, as well. But I think historically, the urologic oncologist was perceived as, maybe actually was, someone who came in early in the morning, operated all day, left late at night, had impatience for one week, two weeks at a time, did a lot of research, and never had time for him or herself outside of the hospital. Is that either of your lives? And do you think that is currently what SUO-trained fellows' existence is? Yeah, I'll take that to start. No, it's not. That's not my life. You didn't describe my life just now. Work-life balance is incredibly important to me. And as chief of the urologic oncology division at U of M, it's incredibly important that we set a culture where work-life balance is important. You know, residents sometimes, with what they experience when, say, they're on a urologic oncology service is getting to work really early and going home really late. And that is because many of us do have, say, a late OR day. And when you're on a urologic oncology service, everybody's late day is your late day. That's residency training, right? So residency is, is hard, but it, it sometimes gives the, it gives the impression that urologic oncologists are just always like pedal to the metal, don't get out much, don't see their family. And so I'll tell you, so for me, I'm home for dinner most days of the week. I help drive my kids to school, at least, or dra- drop, drop them off at the bus early a couple of days of the week. I exercise probably five days a week and I do all, I try to do all this stuff visibly, right? So it's not like I'm sneaking out of the, like if I go to make make it to one of my kids, 2 p.m. something at school, then I'm like, oh, I'm going to sneak out. It's like, I do it visibly so people can see that, yeah, that's okay. That's good, actually. Like if you've if you got time and you can make it to something like that or you can get a workout in at four o'clock on a nice day, do it. It's really important. So I think that's the culture we want. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to, you know, embarrass you here, but the socials did just tell me that you completed your first triathlon, and I suspect you had to do a little bit of training to successfully do that. 
Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that was a, so that's, that was a, I set that goal in kind of early spring. I did. I'd like I was able to, to train for it. Congratulations. Thanks. I ended up doing two this summer and it was great. I loved it. And I'm keep on, keep, keep on, like, you know, as long as I can, I think I, I really enjoyed it. But you know, anybody who's got kids knows that life is different when you've got kids that are one year old, two years old, three years old. I mean, that's then. So this is where I think our jobs are really tough because trying to balance young kids and all of those responsibilities with work and often early career work trying to establish yourself is really, really challenging. And I think we have to really be aware of that, especially with our usually junior faculty who have young kids, because, they, you know, I mean, I know when, when I had a, we had one and four-year-old, for example, I mean, if I got a 15-minute workout and that was, that was a win. Now we've got a 12 and a 15-year-old and like if I disappear for a two or three hour bike ride on a Saturday morning, I don't know if the kids are even up yet, right? So totally different ball game. And we just, you know, we, we all have different stages of our careers and different stages of our families. But burnout is a big issue for all of urology. And, and I think burnout is certainly an issue in urological oncology that we need to be totally cognizant of. Yeah. So what do you think about work-life balance? Yeah, I alluded to it earlier. I think one of the reasons I took the job that I did was because of me wanting to maintain some work-life balance. Me not wanting to be that archetypal urologic oncologist of the past, like you, you mentioned earlier. My work-life balance is pretty good. I'm pretty happy with it. I do work hard. I do work longer hours than some of my colleagues who don't take care of oncologic patients. But that's my choice. And I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm good at what I do, and I, I want to do a good job at what I do. So I will stay a little bit later, call back all my patients, uh, update them on pathology, update that I'm on the treatment plan, so on and so forth. So I do work, I think I do work longer hours, and I think I also expend more energy in taking care of my patients than some of my colleagues who don't take care of some of the higher stress patients that I do. But that's my choice, and I and I am happy to do it. I think working for a big company like Kaiser, one of the benefits is that I don't have to do any billing. You know, I don't have to. I'm not RVU based, so there's no pressure from a business side that I need to produce X amount of work. And I think that takes a lot of the pressure off my day to day that my some of my colleagues in private practice or even in the academic private practice like you guys might be experiencing. I coach my daughter's softball teams. We go on vacation. We take time off. So I think working for a company like Kaiser allows it's that that work-life balance is certainly built into it a little bit. And I think, I, I like you said, this is my first job out of fellowship, and, it's, and I've been here just, just about nine years, and I think that they're doing a lot of things right by us. And so, ironically, I can't just pop out at two o'clock because I'm not my own boss. Kaiser tells me I have to see patients from, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon to, you know, whatever, four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon. So, I can't just cut out sometimes like I would like to, but certainly with some planning, I, I certainly am able to do all the things I want to do outside of work. Great. Yeah. And I feel as a woman in urologic oncology that I've been fortunate to be in a supportive environment the whole time. I, like many women in medicine, kind of a late bloomer with getting married and having kids. And I had my first child as a second year fellow and my second child as a first year faculty. And gosh, those were some tough times, right? Trying to start a practice, build a practice with two kids under two, doing big cases, trying to advance my career, trying to still be involved in, in publishing and scholarship, trying to be a mom. And if I hadn't been in a community that was as supportive as it was, I would have, I don't know, I don't know what I would have done. It, it's hard to say, but that was a, that was a challenging time. And I had colleagues who all understood the importance of family and allowed me to kind of work through that transition. 
And now I still am kind of in that place. And my kids are young. They're, they're six and seven. But trying to make it to their school events, trying to make it to their games. And I am able to do that. And sometimes that's at the expense of time later on in the day where, you know, they go to bed and I'm charting or I'm writing or I'm doing something education related. But I feel like that balance works for me because I'm able to have the career that I want and I'm able to have a family that I'm involved with. And certainly it ebbs and flows. And there are times where I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm doing too much and none of it very well. And then there are other times more commonly, fortunately, where I'm like, gosh, I have a great family. I have a great career and I have all of this opportunity and it's incredibly fulfilling and rewarding. But like anything, I think you need to be deliberate and you need to understand what it is that makes you happy. And if that's running triathlons, swimming and biking triathlons as well, because I think there are three things involved there, or coaching your kids sports or reading or Netflix, whatever it is, I think you need to kind of understand what makes you happy because no one's going to do that for you and then make sure you're kind of building that into your schedule. And my observation having been in the urologic on- oncology community since, I guess, 2014, is that we do a pretty good job of that. My colleagues and friends in the field seem really well-balanced and happy. And I think of some of them like Angie Smith, who is very balanced and vocal. And so many people look to her because she she does it all so well. And I think is a like shining example of kind of how you how you can manage all of these great things. I agree with you. You know, I think there was that reputation of the SEO being this draconian work is everything, but I think that's definitely changing. If you, even if you go to our meetings, the, the sessions are different, you know, that we're actually talking about where life balance is part of the, as part of the meeting, whether at the, at the AUA or at the uh, actual winter meeting. But I think the people who are in our positions have that responsibility to project that to our trainees and to the people who are coming up behind us. I think that things have changed. I think that attaining a good work-life balance is something that is to be treasured, is something to be applauded. And I think that the three of us here have that responsibility. And I think it's something that's, it's good that we're talking about this. It's good that we're, you know, we're telling people that this is something that we want and that we're able to achieve and that uh, people can follow our lead. Yeah. And, and speaking of the, the socials, I mean, my favorite social media is Strava, which, which is the workout <laughs> exercise social media. Just that, like the community of urologic oncologists, I mean, who are on Strava and getting getting their morning workouts in before going to work. Like, you know, you said, you mentioned a- Angie Smith, who's who's like such a motivator for me, like Angie and Ben Davies and Josh Meeks, you know, all these, you know, colleagues of ours where they're like, they're getting their morning workouts in and then going and operating, seeing patients and research. And um, that's super motivating to me when I'm like, you know, my alarm goes off at five or whatever. I'm like, okay, let's like, gotta go. Like, oh, Angie's working out. Let's go. Yeah, really, it's a community of people who make you want to be better, do more, contribute more. And that's really gratifying to be a part of that community. Phil, I wanted to piggyback off something you just said about how the field is changing. And I think that's very true. I bet each of our day-to-day practices are very different. And so I'd love to just briefly have a roundtable and have each of us kind of share what we're doing clinically. Like I said, I work for a large urology practice where I'm currently the only SUO trained urologic oncologist. So 
when I'm at the office seeing patients, that's usually two or three times a week, depending on my, my schedule's not set, kind of changes week to week. So, you know, most of what I'm seeing in the office is for consultations for everything you're watching oncology, from prostate cancer, testis cancer, bladder, everything in between. So I truly have a head-to-toe urologic oncology clinical practice. When I'm in the operating room, I'm doing all the big cases. I'm doing all the big, still doing the big open kidneys, cable thrombus, cystectomies, RPLNDs. But I'm also have, you know, days where I'm doing, you know, as many TRBTs as the hospital allow me to do. So I've got, you know, a classic head-to-toe, head-to-tail urologic oncology clinical practice. When I'm not doing clinical practice, I do have time built in for academic, whether it's research, writing, collaborative groups, that kind of thing. I also train residents, so we don't have our own residents, but the Naval Medical Center San Diego residents do spend a significant portion of their residency with us. I love training those guys and girls. They're they're a great group. And, uh, you know, I think that I've had a positive influence on them. We've actually had a couple of the Navy trainees going to SUO programs since I've been here. So I think that's, you know, a notch in my belt for what I've been able to kind of impress upon my trainees. We also have a fellow that we share with UC San Diego. It's a combined endoscopy robotics. We actually do the robotics portion of their training as well. So yeah, my day-to-day does include a lot of training of residents and fellows as well. Great. Todd, what are you doing? So, I mean, the, just the kind of overall, what, like what, what my schedule looks like, my clinical time is Monday, Wednesday, and most Fridays. I see patients all day Monday, but split half morning in person, afternoon is virtual care. Wednesdays, I usually have full OR day and I, it, my ORs tend to be it's like heavily robotics driven, split between prostate cancer, kidney cancer, and bladder cancer. And it's the same kind of Fridays, often robotic, mostly robotic surgeries and some TRBTs mixed in. So, but uh, my clinical practice is really evenly a mix of bladder prostate and kidney cancer. And then my Tuesdays and thirties, Thursdays are my research time, academic time, all the other meetings, you name it. And it's for me, like, it's a great mix. I think, um, you know, everybody needs something different in their crew. And, and for me, this, the going back and forth, different different jobs on different days, but also for me, I like switching back and forth, even on a given day, can kind of run up to the lab between cases or have a meeting that's more science driven and then get back and take care of patients. And uh, of course, there's some clinical work on on those Tuesdays and Thursdays too. And it's, it's a great mix. I get to be around just amazing colleagues, amazing colleagues in not just urology, but all these other oncology related fields, non-oncology related fields across the entire university. Totally, you know, totally unrelated to medicine. It's been great. I have great teas. I have great mentors. You name it. Awesome. Yeah, I think with the SUO fellowship training, you can be someone like both of you who treats everything within your logic oncology, or you can hone in on a disease process or part of the body. And for me, I tend to hang out in the pelvis, and I mostly or I'd say expressly do prostate and and bladder cancer. And so my week is also varied, which I like. I'm at the VA two days and that's, we have two robots there and do a lot of endoscopic cases. I actually go to an outpatient center on Wednesdays, which is one of my favorite days of the week. And it's TURBTs. It's, I do a ton of transperineal biopsies with some anesthesia. And then I actually do ablations out there. So my practice has evolved to include focal therapy and salvage therapy. And that has been super rewarding. And then Thursdays, I have a fusion biopsy half day, and then I've just started doing the advanced prostate cancer with one of my uh, colleagues at clinic here. Dr. Calvin Moses is awesome and runs that clinic, and that's a disease space that I really enjoy. And 
for me, the patient interaction there and the multidisciplinary collaboration with medical oncology, radiation oncology, pharmacy, cardio oncology, social work, all, all of the things, I, I find that incredibly satisfying. And then I do some with the education here as the, the program director. I have Fridays dedicated to that. And I think the education opportunities for me within the SUO and within the AUA have been incredibly satisfying, fulfilling, gratifying, all, all the things. And so I feel like, to your point, Todd, I'm able to help advance the field in, in some way through those opportunities, which are not straight research, but it's been been great. So I think we all have our different niches. And I love that there's opportunity kind of in, in all arenas with our, our SUO training. I want to finish just by talking about the community. We've made several references to what an awesome community it is. And for me, the SUO fellowship really just changed my life. Coming to Vanderbilt was unbelievable. And I made such great friends with my, my co-fellows and my partners and the residents. And that is something that I enjoy. And I, every day, am somehow collaborating and talking to and enjoying, you know, life with, with one of my colleagues. And I'll just highlight that this morning, Dan Barokas and I took our his son and my son to, to run a 5K, you know, Titans road race. And it was super fun. We chat about work a little bit. We enjoy Nashville. And it's so great to be with this community. So, you know, share your favorite thing about the SUO community or your co-fellows or whatever it is, Phil. You know, you're right. We're a product of our environment. And, I, you know, nothing happens, you know, by chance. I think we're all, <laughs> I think everything happens for a reason. I was in medical school at Northwestern. And I'm just going to list you some of the people I graduated with. Stacey Lowe, Brian Helfand, Josh Meeks, Jim Wysock at NYU, Alvin Goh, Sloan Kettering. These are all my classmates that I graduated with. My, some of my, these guys, these are all guys I continue to, to be friends with. I text all the time. My friends from residency are some of my best friends in the world, SUO trained and otherwise. I, I happen to graduate with a very big class of Sloan Kettering. These guys are, these guys are texting me right now as I speak. There's a community of friends that I, these are a community of my best friends in the world. You spend that much time with these people, whether you're in med school, residency, and or fellowship, and you're not, you cannot not be friends with these guys. Shout out to Ari Hakimi, Tim Donahue, Kelly Stratton, John Spakianos. I'm going to forget somebody and they're all going to get mad at me, but these are all the guys that I train with. These guys continue to be my best friends. So the SUO is not just a professional community for me, but these are my, these are, these are my social outlets. These are my best friends of the world. We, I actually spend my own time and money to go out and see these guys uh, apart from work. I couldn't be happier with the the community of fellow urologic oncologists that are also some of my best friends in the world. That was a great group of name checks. I love those. All those peeps yeah, are amazing. <laughs> yeah. Solid great. list there. Solid, solid, solid list. Same thing for me. The number of different tech strings I'm on with varied groups of urologic oncologists is more than I could count on two hands. And right, they're not, they're not just friends, but they're it's really important to have these groups when we have complications. It just t ties back into the burnout issue. For me, the number one times that I felt the most burnout is when one of my patients has had a bad complication, and that's you know that's with when you you have to rally the troops, and the troops are are usually in addition to your own family, the troops are the urological oncology colleagues and at your center at other centers. One of my closest friends since med school is Alex Kudikoff, who's chair of urology at Fox Chase in Philadelphia. And it's like just first person I call. 
And that those those moments are so important to to help keep me sane, help keep me on track, to help me think through difficult problems. Or my my cheer here at U of M, Ganesh Palpatu, incredibly a close friend and you know somebody that I can lean on and trust and look out for me. That that exists in our community, like just more than anybody could ever imagine. And it it is a welcoming community. I think the kind of the COVID impact and maybe trainees not seeing that community has been real. And if there has been any loss of kind of downtrend for a couple of years of interest in urologic oncology, I think part of it is due to people not seeing that community because it's been hidden for a few years. Yeah, that's a really good point. The world is so different post-COVID, and part of that is separation of everyone, whether it's at your own institution, we're kind of siloed into our, our, our different kind of remote locations or we're having grand rounds virtually or whatever. And then nationally, whether it's, you know, we're not able to travel to meetings or there's limitations on travel to meetings and you don't get to see that experience or you're interviewing virtually for fellowships. You just don't get that same feel and same sense of community. So if we can leave our listeners with a couple of takeaways, if you could each highlight one or two things that you think really set SUO fellowship training apart from from others or reasons why trainees today should consider an SUO fellowship? What do you think those takeaways would be? So for me, I would quote one of my earliest and most important mentors is Paul Lang. And Paul Lang was passionate, still is passionate about the field of urologic oncology. One of like somebody with the mo- the highest level of just curiosity about the state of the world and state of cancer care can be out as anybody I've ever interacted with. And something that he has always hammered home and hammered home to me since probably I was a visiting sub-I there is the danger of us becoming proceduralists. Not that surgical care isn't a big part of what we do, but us becoming solely proceduralists. He used to refer to this as be- becoming a dancing bear. I say used to, but I'm sure he still does because there's so much more to being a urologist and becoming a urologic oncologist than the procedures that we do. And that's what the SEO is all about. It's, and that's why a year to focus on scholarship is so important because we need to be more than dancing bears. We need to be more than a robotic prostatectomist. We need to take care of patients with prostate cancer. We need to take care of patients with kidney cancer, patients with bladder cancer. And that's what the SUO fellowship sets trainees up for. That's great. He sounds like a very wise man. Big time. So what do you got? I'm going to echo pretty much what Todd said. It's not just learning how to do a certain procedure. If you are interested in learning how to take care of the entire patient, if you're interested in learning how to take care of patients with in a collaborative manner, it's not just what we do in the operating room or in the office. It's making the appropriate referrals. It's being able to talk to an oncologist or a radiation oncologist, an internist about the treatment plan. If you want to be surrounded by excellent people who are passionate about what they do, I think I speak for all of us in knowing that I think it really helps to be in a community of people who are like-minded, to be in a community of people who really want the best for themselves, their patients, and for their colleagues. The SEO provides that, okay? A lot of it, you know, of course, a lot of it has to do with what you're, what you're motivated to do and what you're going to, what you're going to set out to do. But if you want to be in the right environment where people are going to set you up to have the career that you want to have, the SEO is a great place to do that. And so if you have any interest at all, I would encourage our listeners, especially if you're a resident or a, or a medical student, you know, and some kind of trainee, reach out to people like us. You know, we're always willing to talk about this. We're, we're just in this podcast, we're talking about our experiences. So there are a lot of us who are out there who are willing to lend their own experience and talk about how the SEO was 
good or bad for us, but mostly good. Yeah. And I'll just piggyback off of that and say opportunity. So with your training, you have the opportunity to go on and be a busy surgeon or go on and specialize in advanced prostate cancer or go on and actually do uh, health policy or you know, clinical trials and industry. There's so much that you can do with the training that you receive with your SUO fellowship. And once you have that training, you can tailor your career to look like what you want. And it may take some time to get there, but you'll have the background and the foundation to take it to a place that you want to go to in a supportive community. And all of that, I think, translates into ultimately career satisfaction, which in many fields today seems to be kind of elusive. And I am just so grateful for my own training in this community, and I feel energized to be a part of it. And so totally agree if anyone has any questions, thoughts, follow-up, all of us would be more than happy to talk to you about SUO fellowships and how they can help you in your next steps if that's what you're inclined to do. So I really want to thank Phil and Todd for their time and honesty and expertise today and really appreciate Backtable Urology for allowing us to talk about this important topic. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Thanks for focusing on this. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.